Welcome everyone to another episode of the Campus Waterfowl Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Christians. We are sitting here on LSU's campus, Louisiana State University. So we're, we're kind of funny that we're back here. We were doing some hunting with, um, toward the end of the season to kind of wrap out the duck season with Jackson, if you guys watch those videos on YouTube. But uh, now we're here for a different reason. We're going to do some research here uh, with some students. And then we also have a professor here sitting here with us. So um, to my right here, if you guys are watching the, the YouTube video here, I have Dr. Kevin Ringelman. We have Starla Phelps. And then also Deca. Uh, I don't know what your last name is. Uh, Dakota. <laughs> Dakota. So we also have Deca here as well. So I think in this podcast, we're going to be talking about kind of what got them into um, the research side of things and then how what got, what got them inspired to get involved, how they got involved, and then also kind of touch on some of the research that they're working on and then maybe some future plans as well. But a lot of this stuff if you guys are interested, we'll be on YouTube. So if you guys want to see what they're doing in the field throughout this summer, uh, be sure to check out the YouTube video. That'll be f coming up probably in probably within a week of this podcast. So be on the lookout for that. But I think let's get into the podcast. Kevin, you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Kevin Ringelman. Um, uh, my full title is I'm the H. Dale Hall Ducks Unlimited Endowed Professor of Wetlands and Waterfowl Conservation at LSU, uh, which is quite a lot. But um, I'm an associate professor. Uh, I've been here for about eight years and I am, you know, the waterfowl professor for LSU. So I have right now I have six graduate students. Um, Starla is my new PhD student working on, on whistling ducks. I have a long backstory, so I'll pass it to Starla. <laughs> Hi, my name is Starla Phelps. Um, I'm originally from Tennessee. I did my undergrad at Christian Brothers University and my master's at University of Arkansas at Monticello, and now I'm here. Awesome, and I'm Deca Dakota. I'm actually here from Louisiana, and uh, I attended my undergrad here at the LSU Renewable Natural Resource Program, and I've been out of school for about a year working tech jobs and looking to eventually start my own master's program. So this is a great experience watching a new program start up and watch how it all works because this will be a big help for me in the future. Mm -hmm. If you guys have been following along, um, so this is the second season we've been doing the kind of the research tours, kind of what we called it. But um, last year we were actually visiting with um, um, Dr. Jared Henson up in Memphis. And so, yeah, that's kind of kind of how you can kind of see how small of a world the re the research side is but then i think i got introduced to kevin through um and and starla through mike brazier at ducks mm -hmm. unlimited uh, and and so it's finally good to kind of come here and, and experience everything we actually got a day in the field under under the belts already so we're literally just got back from in the field <laughs> yeah. and the louisiana humidity is definitely <laughs> just a little sweaty yeah yep so uh, but no, definitely had a great time uh, this morning. Uh, I think there was a couple surprises, it seemed like, this morning. So I think we'll touch on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But let's talk Let's talk about um, kind of your backgrounds a little bit more. What kind of got you guys inspired to get involved with waterfall and just well in research? Well, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give sort of, I guess, maybe the longer version then. Um, yeah. So uh, my dad worked for the Colorado Division of Wildlife as uh, a wildlife biologist there. And then he was a director of conservation programs for Ducks Unlimited out of their Great Plains office in Bismarck. And so I've always sort of been in the research side of the waterfowl world um, and getting involved here at LSU has taught me a little bit about the fundraising side as well. Um, so I've always been sort of engaged with ducks and both my mom and dad were big hunters and things like that. 
Uh, for undergrad, I went to upstate New York to Cornell University, where I did research on passerines and things like that. And then I went straight from undergrad to a PhD program, which I would not recommend, so do it more like Decca's doing it, um, to uh, UC Davis, where I worked with John Edie on some ground nesting waterfowl in the Sassoon Marsh of California. And then I went back across the country uh, on a fairly harrowing drive to the University of Delaware, where I worked on uh, black duck movement ecology for about a year, and then I started at LSU about eight years ago. So it's been kind of a wild ride. So my, my current research program um, is anywhere from South Louisiana, where Alex and maybe a little bit Starla's working, all the way up to um, Saskatchewan. So sort of span multiple flyways and all across the continent, which is pretty fun, but keeps me traveling. Yeah, so I started out um, actually as pre-med, um, that was the path that I was going. Um, so my undergrad is actually in biology with a minor in chemistry. And essentially, I just I wanted to be a physical therapist. And one day, Dr. Jared Henson, actually, he came up to me. I was in his anatomy and physiology class. And he's like, hey, I have to, I'm running a nest box study this summer. And I need students to help. Like, would you be interested? And I was like, sure, why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't think anything of it. And then just instantly fell in love with it and I didn't know anything about ducks. I didn't even know what a whistling duck was. I didn't even know there were different types of ducks. I just knew a duck was a duck. <laughs> like, that's all I knew. And so I'm more new to this field than, like, some people, I would say, just because, you know, for the first three years of my undergrad, it was all medical stuff. And then senior year, I decided, like, to do more, like, wildlife classes that we did have, which wasn't many. Um, and then I did just went straight into my master's to do – um, actual like my degree is in like forestry but even then still mainly like wetland classes and stuff like that but you know I just I don't didn't have the typical route that most people have to get in this field I didn't grow up with hunting or anything like that so I just kind of was just kind of stumbled into this field and fell in love <laughs> yeah and I guess I'm the younger of the group so I don't have as much backstory so I'll go back a little further <laughs> um, I growing up like by the time I was like four, I was the kid at T-ball in the outfield collecting bugs instead of playing the game. Um, and I always had an interest in the outdoors. And my family, they, they did some hunting, but it wasn't a very big thing in my life. It was I kind of decided this on my own. Um, and then by the time I was a seven or eight, I learned of the word wildlife biologist. And from that point on, I knew that I think this is the career I want to go to, which is impressive for an eight-year-old mm-hmm. um do you remember how you stumbled across that kind of career or title i believe it, it was i mean there's always things like steve Irwin and and jeff corwin and there's there's mm-hmm. television that shows you the insides of that much like this program mm-hmm. does where it it kind of opens the curtain and shows you what wildlife biologists do and and seeing those kind of things and then I have some relatives that ended up being wildlife biologists. Uh, they're currently still are for the Louisiana Department of Wildlife hmm. and Fisheries. But being exposed to that, I, I, I realized very early on that this is what I wanted to do. And uh, by the time I got to my junior, senior year of high school, I got in contact with my relatives that were with the department. I'm like, how do I get into this field? And they pointed me to LSU at the Renewable Natural Resource Department, uh, which is where they all went. and senior year of high school it was the only college i applied to i i got my grades and i came here in the fall and 
lucky enough, I was able to take a lot of courses with Dr. Ringelman, and I think it was his waterfowl biology course that finally sealed the deal, and his uh, first hunter program as well. I had never gone on a waterfowl hunt before. I knew nothing about duck hunting, and I ended up going to Oak Grove as my first hunt, which is uh, pretty okay. It's a pretty good place <laughs> to go. I limited out on my teal, and and from that point on, I knew that I. I, I definitely want to work with birds, whether that be upland birds or waterfowl, but I, I knew that this was definitely the career for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, these dual perspectives here I think are really important, especially for anyone listening to this podcast and you know thinking about career paths, whether they're in middle school or high school, that this is a job that you can do. Yeah. Um, is to be outside either working and actively managing habitats and water levels um, and agricultural things um, or forestry or working directly with the birds and wildlife themselves. And so, you know, Starla has sort of a more non-traditional background where, you know, DEC is coming in with that, that interest pre-sealed. But, yeah. you know, the, there are programs like this that exist around the country. And, and one of the strengths at LSU is we really try hard to get our students into the field actively hands-on. So beyond just the classroom and learning from pictures of birds, we're actually going out and catching snakes and banding ducks and all yep. of that. So it's, it's, it's a lot of work as a professor, but it's pretty rewarding to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and since graduating, I've gone on and, and worked plenty of tech jobs that have been introduced to me specifically from this program. I've done songbird, songbird surveys for the U.S. Forest Service in conjunction with LSU. I've tracked turkeys. I'm now catching ducks and banding and geolocating and pit tagging <laughs> and all the ings. But, uh, yeah, this, this program definitely, like, the people you meet and the exposure that you get, like, I definitely wouldn't be this far along without it. Kevin, you mentioned kind of, like, you go in the field a lot with your, with your students. What level classes are you bringing out in the field with you? So in, in this program, we get students in the field by their sophomore year. Really? But okay. most of the classes – that I teach that are field oriented are for juniors and seniors. Um, but, but there's, there's a lot where electroshocking fish and flying drones and all mm-hmm. sorts of things. So it's, it's pretty great. Um, I know when we were in the field today, you wanted me to, to talk a little bit about graduate education as well. So, um, yeah, one, one of the things that even as incoming freshmen, a lot of our students don't realize is that, um, if if you want to have a, a well-paying career in wildlife, you know something beyond sort of the the entry-level jobs. Like it really is beneficial to get an advanced degree, whether it's a, a master's degree like Starla got from from uh, Arkansas Monticello, or going on to a PhD to have a research job in USGS or US Fish and Wildlife Service. And in the wildlife field, uh, these are are paid graduate positions. So, you know, Starla receives an annual stipend. It's not a lot, but it's enough to live on. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And all of her tuition is waived and things like that. And so, you know, my job is I get research grants to pay graduate students um, for their time and effort um, to get that advanced degree. So, you know, for any of those listeners out there thinking that, that graduate school is, is financially beyond you or anything like that, it's like, you know, the, the professors are paying for you to go to school to get your advanced degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, when I'm, I'm looking for graduate students, you know, what DEC is doing right now and getting this experience and all these various techniques and different geographies uh, is really important because, you know, if I've got a research project, I, I can't be in the field mm-hmm. with my students every day. I'm lucky if I get out for, you know, a few days a year, yeah. really. Yeah. And so, you know, Starlet worked with whistling ducks in, in Memphis, and so I don't need to teach her about whistling ducks or how to handle them. You know, she's banded a ton of ducks with Doug in, in Monticello, and so she was ready to just 
hit the hit the ground running. And so a lot of times, you know, those practical hands-on field skills are really important um, for, for getting a spot in a graduate program. But, you know, I have other students who are doing um, some, like, uh, machine learning visual algorithm stuff with drone footage. And there, Zach's experience in remote sensing um, and in, in coding in, in Python and things like that has been yeah. super beneficial, too. So it's really about matching a student to a particular project and developing those skill sets both in your undergrad and beyond that to be competitive. Mm-hmm. I would say, so the coding is pretty intimidating. I think the word coding is intimidates a lot of people, yeah. myself included. Um, do a lot of your students coming in know coding or are they learning coding kind of on the job? It's variable. Most of <laughs> yeah. them, for, for most of the positions that that I'm hiring, like I want them to be safe and competent in the field because I can't be there with them, mm-hmm. but I can be there with them in the lab, you know, learning statistics and, and coding and things like that. Mm-hmm. So like realistically, unless you're a hardcore stats person, you're really only going to learn statistics when you have to, yeah. when you have your own data that you then have <laughs> to do something with. Um, and then you can Google it or, I guess, chat GPT it now um, and figure <laughs> yeah. out how to do it. So. Yeah. In um, my, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, but in my master's, that was like tackling R and learning how to code was like one of the funnest things, but one of the hardest things. But Google was my best friend. Mm-hmm. Like I could literally like, you have to figure out how to type the question just right, but you will find the answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah and, and in this undergrad, like I, I got some exposure to coding, light usage of R. We did it in in and waterfowl biology as well. Um, but going forward, it's definitely something that like I personally want to do because I think it'll set myself ahead of a lot of people when I start that application period. Mm-hmm. And I actually just a couple days ago, I found out that um, Stanford, uh, they have a free online intro mm-hmm. to coding course that mm-hmm. you can take on your own time during the semester. And School. It's something that I, I plan on doing mm-hmm. very soon because I, I think it'll be helpful because I, I know I'm going to have to do stats at some point and might as well get it done now. Yeah, and different programs around the country are variable. So, like, I know University of Minnesota, like, their wildlife or maybe their zoology students, I forget what they call them, um, like, Todd Arnold teaches a really sort of code-intensive class yeah. in population mm-hmm. ecology, and that's just not one of the strengths of this program. So it's it's uneven across the country, I would say. Mm-hmm. But everyone can learn it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess in the in the pockets and Decca, you mentioned like when when you start applying for these kind of positions or these opportunities, um, Kevin and I were kind of talking about too this morning about like what maybe he uh, his perspective yeah what does he look for in applicants and I think as listeners and viewers I think that might help if we if Kevin could share a little bit maybe things that he he looks for or even like what's a good like what are what are, what are some resources students could use to at least get I guess their foot in the door um, early on to kind of get into these into the field because I think a lot of stuff you professors might look for is field work but it might be kind of tough getting that right. first yeah, foot exactly. in the door. Yeah so um, it, it starts in your undergrad so there's two important things you need to do in undergrad. One is get decent grades because you can't go back and change those. Um, you can you can always get more experience or varied experience, but you can't change your grades. Um, and some programs have like a hard floor where like if you don't have a 3.0, like you're just not eligible for their programs. So grades do matter. Yeah. Um, and then it's it's actually talking to your professors because they're the ones who are going to get you your first field jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's 
you know, they there's a stack of applications at, for some DU interns in South Dakota or whatever, but it says LSU on it, and so then I get phone calls, regardless of whether you list me as a reference or not, because they know me. Um, and then it's just it's just a couple words, and then that's that's your job. So those are certainly the easiest ways to get your to get your foot in the door is through existing connections. But if you're at you know Starlers University, it, it requires maybe a little bit more work if you don't have like a huge wildlife program that you can rely on on yeah. faculty. You know your state agencies often have volunteer positions for banding and things like that. Um, there's migratory bird programs in in every state. Um, local Audubon societies, things like that, offer pastoring banding workshops. Um, so, so um, yeah, so getting first field jobs and then it's, you know, things that I'm looking for in a student is it would be unusual if I hired you for a graduate position I'd never heard your name. <laughs> that would be really unusual. You were talking about how small the waterfowl research Very world small. is. Like this is only my, I think, fifth or sixth trip, and it's like the amount of times – like I've mentioned like past trips I've been on or like ones I plan on going on. It's like oh, Kevin, yeah. he, he knows so-and-so and so-and-so Starla knows so-and-so and so-and-so. Yeah. So it's like, mm -hmm. it's crazy. <laughs> right. Right. So, so it's, it's really building those connections, um, you know, with successive field jobs. Um, and they're, they're all advertised on like the Texas A&M wildlife jobs board. Mm -hmm. So I forget what the actual website is, but, um, if you Google that, you'll find it. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and there's some other waterfowl specific resource and things like that. But yeah. Yeah, I think a big thing for me, at least, like with my non-traditional background, is I showed that I had passion for this field and that I really wanted to do the work and I really wanted to learn. Like I knew I, I acknowledged that I was like a little bit more behind since I don't have the traditional like background and knowledge that some other people do from the classes they took. But I just like showed that I had the drive and that's what, and passion, and that's what got my foot into the door and then and also just like having a mentor mm -hmm. that's like the biggest thing for me at least like um dr jared henson was like the most helpful person and he like made sure i knew everything not like everything about this field but like knew the details about this field and you know i was like made sure this is what i wanted to do like he really took the time and then he at uh, the north american duck symposium he made sure i got to go to that and present my undergrad research and that's how my name really got out into this field and how I got to meet a lot of people and make those connections. And I made another thing, too, is when you make these connections, follow up with the connections. Because if you don't follow up, they're not going to remember your name as well. Yep. I remember when Starla was one of the only undergrads to present her research at that Duck Symposium. I think it was it was this one, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Ducks 8. Um, yeah. And, and that was, you know, she's got a pretty recognizable name. And, and her rolling up to get an award for her undergrad research certainly st stood out in the minds of a lot of faculty who are watching mm -hmm. that cool. she's going to she's going to be something. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and now she's here going to be Dr. Yeah. Dr. Phelps one day. So awesome. Yeah, you'll be looking back on this video and be like, man, look where I started. Yeah, yeah literally where I'm starting. I haven't even technically started the Ph.D. yet. <laughs> but that's, that's one of the most, it's not one of, it's clearly the most rewarding thing about having, you know, a university job is following these undergrads as they sort of figure out what they want to do with their lives. And then usually if they take my waterfowl class, I convince them that yeah. ducks are what they want to do with their lives. <laughs> yeah. um, and then seeing them, you know, succeed in various, you know, jobs or, or graduate positions. You know, I think I've got something like a dozen former students or techs or whatever who work for Ducks Unlimited now, yeah. um, and they're in grad programs anywhere from you know, California to Maryland to Delaware to Canada and everywhere in between. So, yeah. mm -hmm. um, and kind of, I just want to focus on students maybe that are 
planning like right now it's kind of the off season summer some students in high school are thinking about where they're going to college like i thinking of myself when i was in high school like i was super eager like i couldn't wait to get to college like open like meet meet people find opportunities and things like that i was kind of ready um if there's students out there right now that are kind of have that same like that same edge um like where do you where would you send them to kind of um get started at least you, do you think is it the websites of these um age state agencies would be the best place to kind of start reaching out to people or yeah it could be um, you know, there's, you can always, uh, access your local chapter of Ducks Unlimited, right? Cause they'll, they'll have connections to things related to the science realm as well. Um, mm -hmm. but then, yeah, you're as, as a taxpayer of your state, you are more than entitled to call up your <laughs> state waterfowl biologists yeah. and say hi, and they'll be happy that you're not a mad duck hunter this time. And you're actually, yeah. we're interested in research stuff. So, yep. um, yeah, I mean, I think those are, those are good resources, local Audubon societies, birding clubs, all of that can sort mm -hmm. of get you sort of feeling out what is in your your local area yeah mm -hmm. or just like any colleges that are on your list that you're wanting to go out reach out to their department and like once you reach out they can guide you in the right direction they can tell you about the program they mm -hmm. can tell you about the different things that they do what's the strong suit of the program what's not and like knowing what you're getting into as well is a big thing because yeah. they can also be like you could ask is there any volunteer opportunities so i can experience this before i want to come mm -hmm. here and who knows there might be a summer project like ours that 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 lead professor can be like sure we've taken out multiple yeah. students yeah. that are volunteers uh this summer to go show them the field and show them what this is all about so mm -hmm. like don't be afraid to ask for those like those volunteer opportunities because yeah. yeah. they're big your state Perfect. university has a forestry program that probably has a wildlife component in yeah. it yeah almost certainly yeah and it's important to get those opportunities like Deco was saying because you know, for me personally, like if I wouldn't have done all the internships that I did in undergrad, I wouldn't have known that the health science field was not for me. You know, I would have continued in that realm and then been potentially stuck there. You know, so like I did those and then I did the research with Henson and just was like, oh, OK. So like you you can really discover what you want to do through the actual internships versus just sitting in a classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and as we tell our students, finding out what you don't want to do is just as important. Honestly, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, there's there's some pretty big divides. Do you like plants or animals? You know, do you like things that swim in water, things that are on land, things that fly, things that walk, you know, things you can shoot, things you can't shoot? Right? These are all <laughs> yeah. important distinctions that sort of progressively narrow you into a particular career path. Yeah, mm -hmm. I took a job one time like trapping hogs in the summer heat of Louisiana for uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and I was like, I think. I'm good on this side of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, perfect. I think that's a, a good spot to, to kind of cut and kind of pivot to, to talk about more of the research stuff. I th The reason I want to take that time to talk about that cause it is because I do get messages and people reaching out of just different opportunities and just students wanting to get involved and they just don't really know where to go. And so hearing it from students that are going through and then uh, Dr. Ringelman as well, um, hopefully that helps you guys and um, you can – find someone in your area or some, somewhere that you might be going to college to kind of uh, get your foot in the door early. So hopefully that helps. But let's let's start talking about the research. So um, Dr. Ringelman, do you want to kind of talk about kind of what your programs all entail and all the projects you oversee? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll focus uh, right now on, on Starlow's project. We can talk about the other ones if we have time. But um, Starlow's project emerged from this uh, 
ongoing wood duck recruitment study uh, that's a partnership among a half dozen southeastern states to basically estimate whether box populations are self-sustaining of wood ducks or whether they're a waste of time. So in Louisiana, uh, we have whistling ducks that also use these, um, these wood duck boxes. And so there's an obvious sort of management tension about whether whistling ducks are competing with wood ducks for these boxes. Um, they are nest parasites, so they will lay, whistling ducks will lay eggs in wood duck nests, which is potentially bad. If there's too many eggs, the nests won't hatch. Um, and so there's this, this, um, this tension of, of how wood ducks and whistling ducks are coexisting. And this is particularly relevant because whistling ducks have been expanding their range. So they're, historically speaking, like in the 70s and 80s, they were you know, along the, the Texas coast and maybe a little bit into Louisiana, but the bulk of their range was uh, through Mexico well into South America. And it's only been since the mid-2000s that we've seen this massive influx of whistling ducks to places as far north as Memphis, and there's been you know, wandering individuals seen in Canada. Um, so this is a rapidly expanding species. We know almost nothing about it, and they're potentially competing with native wood ducks, which we do care about and are an important bird in the bag for tons of hunters in southern states. And so um, I have another PhD student, Dylan Baekner, who's tackling sort of the wood duck angle, but we really needed someone to focus specifically on whistling ducks because we just don't know a lot about them. And so that was specifically why I hired Starla to come in and do a PhD on whistling ducks. And so we're interested in things about, you know, the how many eggs they lay and how many ducklings they hatch and sort of what it looks like their populations are doing. But we're also interested in things like return rates. So the ducklings that we mark, um, when they come back as adults, uh, do they come back at a, and at what frequency and are they breeding? Um, things about rates of parasitism. And then the cool piece of technology that Starla is deploying um, this field season and next field season are called geolocators. And you'll see these in the field in the YouTube videos, but they're, they're uh, light sensors attached to a clock. And basically they use the day length to estimate latitude. Um, and then they use the midpoint between dawn and dusk to estimate longitude. And so then you can actually get an approximate spot on the globe for that bird. It's accurate to a few hundred kilometers, but sufficient to know whether your whistling duck has gone to Texas or, you know, Costa Rica. Um, these uh, light logging devices need to be recovered. And so Starless study is going to take place over multiple years. So as those birds that we uh, put geolocators on, as they come back to breed again, take the geolocator off and see where they went. Um, and we can also uh, detect things like nesting attempts from, from these light loggers and things like that. So that's sort of how this project came to be. Um, and now Starla is sort of grinding in the field and trying to get the details done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and how big, so you have a team as well under you, Starla. Yes. So how big is your team? Um, so we have me and then three other techs, uh, DECA included. Um, so DECA and I run Sherburn. And we have two other techs, Emily and Ben. And both of them, they run the Woodworth sites. So essentially what we're doing is we're just going out and checking nest boxes. Like that's kind of like the broad overview. Um, so at Sherburn Wildlife Management Area, we have, um, how many nest boxes do you think we have, Deca? Off the top of your head. I can't. Oh, we have. <sighs> there's like. Probably near 200. Yeah, yeah there's, there's quite a few boxes. So what we do is we do weekly checks on them. And essentially what we do is like. You know, when you check a box, there will be eggs in it, and then we number each egg so that they have their own number, and then that way we can keep track of, you know, whether if they're depredated, you know, when they hatch, etc., like all of these things. And then we also, like, take the adult bird, and we tag them. We, pit, like, put a band on them. We pit tag them. Um, 
you know, and take different measurements, draw blood. You know, we do, there's a lot of different things that we do in the field. Um, But essentially the whole idea is to figure out like how many ducklings that these birds are having. Um, And so we tag the adults and the ducklings and then we, and then they go on from there. So, but what we're kind of doing to this week is just, we're kind of going out trying to catch um, and check on the whistling duck nest specifically because our wood duck season is kind of breeding season has kind of come to like an end for the most part we still have a couple of nests left but for the most part they're over so right now it's whistling duck time and so yeah maybe you just give the the listeners a sense of like what types of numbers we're seeing for for nests and how many hatch and how many fail and you know what's the cause of failure and things like that yeah so essentially i'm going to focus mainly on um sherburn just Mm -hmm. because you know we're still entering data and stuff for woodworth and we're honestly still entering data for sherburn as well but um so just kind of like a few rough estimates that we have so all over sherburn we've had a roughly 150 nests this season and that's with one of our sites or actually two of our sites being kind of um shut down temporarily because of boat issues um, so we probably would have more nests, but, you know, that's just kind of something that we ran into this season. Um, we've banded roughly over 100 adults, um, about 81 wood ducks, 16 black-bellied whistling ducks, and five hooder mergansers. So those are the typically, those are the cavity nesters that we catch in the nest boxes. And then, turn my book a little bit. Um, so far we've had, and this is just, so those were across all of Sherburn. So far at just the North and South farm units, we've had 31 successful wood duck nests, two black-bellied whistling ducks, and four hooded mergansers. And then we've had seven wood ducks that have been non-successful and six black-bellied whistling ducks that have been non-successful. And when I say non-successful, essentially... The nest can fail due to multiple reasons. Um, one of the reasons is depredation from, like, snakes or woodpeckers. Um, at North and South Farm, we have a lot of issues with snakes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, at our boat sites, which is um, we call Section 120, those sites we have a lot of issues with woodpeckers actually mm-hmm. depredating our eggs. Um, and so those are kind of, like, what we kind of face with that. But also sometimes the ducks will just abandon the nest. A lot. And so we have like different codes that we use essentially. So some of them are just like, you know, it's partially depredated, abandoned, just abandoned, or total depredation and abandoned. Um, so those are kind of the reasons why the nest may fail. And also like other reasons why if they're, you know, brood parasitism becomes too heavy, then essentially the whichever species is incubating at that time can just leave. You know, that's w- one of the issues that we're looking at to see with um like species like you know whenever whistling ducks parasitize whistling ducks or wood ducks parasitizing whistling ducks and vice versa you know that's the things that we're kind of looking at yeah and this woodpecker predation is really interesting i mean you wouldn't think of red-bellied woodpeckers as being fierce predators of of duck nests but in fact mm-hmm. they're they are the number one predator at our sites uh and so they'll they'll enter a box and basically peck an egg open and then eat on it, and then leave, and then come back and eat on it some more. And then when the incubating hen comes back, she will uh, notice the damaged egg and actually remove that. Mm-hmm. And then the woodpecker will come and peck a different egg um, and sort of starts all over again. And one of the, the most interesting dynamics um, from my perspective is, you know, we came into this study um, thinking about wood ducks and whistling ducks, and, oh, whistling ducks are going to parasitize wood duck nests, and there's going to be too many eggs, and the wood ducks will abandon, like Sarah was talking about. Um, 
But in fact, that's not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons we think that is, is because whistling ducks are adding eggs to those nests, but woodpeckers are removing them effectively. They're killing them. And so, you know, you could imagine if you had uh, an area where there was only woodpeckers, eventually the woodpeckers would kill the whole clutch of eggs, eat all the eggs eventually. Um, and if you had a site where you had only whistling ducks and no woodpeckers, you might get too many eggs and you have an unsuccessful nest as well. But if you've got both whistling ducks and woodpeckers, it's kind of like one is adding and the other one is taking away and you kind of like hatch out like a pretty okay clutch mm-hmm. at the end of it all. So some really unexpected dynamics from, from the mm-hmm. interplay of these three species. It's pretty wild. Yeah. And you see all combinations of things down here. You've, did you ha- we had at least one nest with all three species in it this year, right? We, yeah, there was one, what we call the trifecta nest, which is <laughs> like, you got a merganser egg, you got a whistling duck egg, and you got a, uh, a wood duck egg. Yeah. Uh, we, so far over the course of this project, uh, like with Dylan's uh, time here, and then now going at the Starlet, we have yet to have one of those nests hatch out all three ducklings at once. Mm-hmm. The closest we get is we'll get two. Yeah, but I'm hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. Is it pretty easy to identify like the, the different eggs? Um, we were talking about it a little bit today, but like, w- what about how like a wood and merganser compares? Yeah, so merganser eggs are typically like a little bigger, um, and they're like, to me, they're a little bit more round, yeah. and they're like white okay. as well. Um, they're a cue ball. Yeah, yeah, a cue ball essentially. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> and then like wood duck eggs are, you know, like I said, a little bit smaller than hood and mergansers, and like typically they're not as rounded. And, um, and sometimes they have like this little tan color, you know, it's not necessarily like the best, you know, way to tell that that is a wood duck egg, but, um, in comparison to the other two, they are usually more like tan and not as like bright white. Mm -hmm. And then with the whistling duck egg, one thing that we were talking about earlier in the YouTube video is that, um, when you candle a whistling duck egg, it's speckled. And, like, the outside of it is, like, almost like you can run your finger over it, and it's not, like, a super smooth surface. It's kind of, like, got, like, a little roughness to it. Yeah, and the the span of nest initiation dates is different for the three species Mm -hmm. as well. So hooded mergansers will be on the early end, early in the season. Then you'll get wood ducks coming in. um, And then right around the time when wood ducks, any failed wood duck nesters are re-nesting, that's when whistling ducks are laying eggs parasitically in wood duck nests. And then after sort of that period is done, then whistling ducks will start laying their own nests and incubating their own nests. So it's kind mm-hmm. of a cool mixed strategy. Mm-hmm. So right now we are on whistling duck incubation and we are in mid-June. Yes. <laughs> and they have, uh, they also parasitize each other pretty heavily. We just had a nest uh, last week, actually. The, uh, the total egg count for the box made it to 48, mm-hmm. 48 eggs. And we hatched out. 37 ducklings which is incredible yeah Yeah. that's crazy successful yeah (laughs) was a bunch of cute little babies in a bucket (laughs) yeah and and hatching (laughs) out these mixed broods of wood ducks and whistling ducks is is not uncommon in fact with the numbers including dylan's data it's basically one third of the whistling duck ducklings that hatch come from wood duck nests from parasitizing Mm -hmm. those nests so a major Mm -hmm. part of their productivity is from parasitism which is pretty wild Mm -hmm. um and then these, these mixed broods, or these, these mixed clutches of eggs, um, what's really unusual is we don't ever really see mixed broods swimming on the water. So, you know, a, a, a whistling duck, you know, mom and dad will hatch out three wood ducks, but you don't see them with the whistling duck brood. And so we don't know what 
it happens yeah. or where yeah. they go. Like we don't know if if the whistling ducks are like killing the wood duck ducklings. We don't think that's totally true because we had wood duck ducklings hatched by whistling ducks that we've caught in boxes in previous years. Right, so it's not it's probably not that. Are they reassorting where the wood ducks will realize that they would prefer to be with other wood ducks, and they sort of split off and find, an, you know, if like a foster mom? Like it's just one of those great unknowns. It's pretty wild. Yeah, just another project you got to start. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah. How many like when you guys are out there? Like how many times in a day do you think you think about just like things you could research or like things you could do differently to your current project? Oh, it's like. Every time we go out, in between going from one box to the next, there's always another thought of like, oh, we could do this differently. Oh, I wonder what's going on with that. Like, Yeah, we're always asking each other questions. We're like, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? Yeah, like, like there's always like questions just bouncing back and forth between us. And we're just like, no. And <laughs> yeah, then like, we just we kind of jot them down sometimes. And we're like, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, like, like the most recent one that we've been trying to figure out is right now we're in a little bit of a drought. There's not a lot of water around. And we've had quite a few nests that like whistling ducks just kind of abandoned. Mm-hmm. And we're like, does this correlate? Why would that even work? What, like what about water would even make that happen? Like it could be something totally unrelated. But like there's always so many unknowns when you're out in the field that yeah. you're just constantly asking questions. And that's why like. We need more technicians and more people doing research because, like, mm-hmm. there's just too many questions. That like, to and answer. the bands, like, turning colors. Oh, and then, yeah. like, and then also, like, that was a big thing that we, like, saw the other day. And we're like, that band used to be, like, a silvery color and now it's orange. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yep. It's, there's not enough, not enough hours in the day mm-hmm. to answer all the questions you want to answer. That's kind of mm-hmm. you, where you come in trying to get these grants, right? Is right. that kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then. I'm at a point now, so I, have, I currently have six graduate students, two PhD students, four master's students, and an undergrad researcher, which is arguably beyond my capacity to efficiently <laughs> handle. Um, so a couple of them are graduating this fall, so we'll clear out some space. But yeah, it's just like finding, you know, finding, you know, money hasn't been super difficult. You know, our, our state agency has been super supportive, and we've got some federal money, and Ducks Unlimited and Delta Waterfowl have, have all contributed to, to research. Um, it's, it's like finding, yeah it's a bandwidth issue there's only so many waterfowl faculty in north mm-hmm. america yeah and there's loads of questions mm-hmm. um uh and so yeah one of the you know i operate on a couple uh sort of national and international organizing committees that think about sort of the waterfowl profession writ large and one of the things we're concerned about is you know a lot of waterfowl faculty are approaching retirement age um, and so it's this idea of like who's going to mine the marsh, like who's going to be here to train the next generation of, of waterfowl, both scientists and managers. And so that's something that we're starting to, to grapple with as a profession because, you know, you think about all of the other pressing environmental needs that are out there and, you know, ducks and geese are doing pretty well compared to other birds, let alone, you know, things like herps or something like that. And so as a wildlife department, like what is, what is their motivation to replace a retiring faculty member with someone who does waterfowl research as opposed to some of these other pressing environmental needs. And so, yeah, lots of things to think about that, that are operating <laughs> yeah, at scales above master students and technicians. But, um, yeah. But I think there's light at the end of the tunnel because, it is, like, I, I think I've seen it. Was it this last year where I can't remember what survey? It was like a national survey looking at different, like, types of habitats and, like, the birds and stuff. Was it wetlands the only one that had – 
like increasing numbers. Oh yeah, I mean, so the like the famous three billion birds report that that the the North America's lost like literally three billion birds since the nineteen seventies, and all taxonomic groups are in decline except for waterfowl and yeah. wetland dependent species, which are yeah. up, and that's largely on the backs of of you know the North American Waterfowl Management Plan um, and mm -hmm. the joint ventures and associated things like that. Um, yeah, so I mean. Waterfowl are in, are in great shape, you know, and it's it's a legacy effect going back through the 1980s. Do you think that then other, like other organizations, seeing those other, and that see those other, I guess, ecosystems, or I don't know how you would describe them, but do you think they would try to template kind of what? And they have. So, what we're so doing? when the North American model for waterfowl management was released in 1986, that's become sort of like the model uh, strategic conservation document that has been you know, um, not copied, but, but imitated by Partners in Flight and by shorebird conservation and seabird conservation and all these other consortiums that are trying to conserve, you know, their, their favorite charismatic species. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really, you know, uh, I feel pretty comfortable in this job because ducks are, at least in my lifetime, still going to be pretty popular uh, among North American hunters. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that their passion for the resource will will continue to support, you know, state agencies and their priorities and NGOs like DU and Delta and Cal Waterfowl that will then funnel money into research and management um, yeah. mm -hmm. for the foreseeable future. How do you mm -hmm. guys feel about that? Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it's definitely like waterfowl is here to stay. There's definitely a lot of other programs and, and other animals and species that don't have the backing. And it's just because, like, people love ducks. I mean whether you're in a resident and you're looking at your back pond and you like to see them or you're a, you're a fellow duck hunter and you go out and you you chase these species all season long um it's hard for a lot of other species to have that kind of backing because a lot of these ones that are struggling are simply not things that that the model allows to hunt where it's your your passerines or or other avian species like that and also i feel like too like you know ducks are like researchers and like programs like du and stuff they're like they're really good at like making people know about ducks like yeah. you know like me i didn't really know anything about birds at all but i knew what a duck was i don't know what a pa i didn't know what a passerine meant at all like i couldn't tell you the difference between like a sparrow and a something else you know <laughs> like i just you know so like ducks are just like this image that you can like see so i do agree that Ducks are going to be around to stay. And also, they're super cute. Like, you've seen a duckling. Ducklings are adorable. <laughs> yeah. People yeah. love ducklings. Yeah, we're going to see some ducklings tomorrow in the field. Yes. <laughs> pretty, much, pretty much a guarantee yep. for what we saw today. Well, I wanted to put in, uh, you know, we talked about everyone knows what a duck is, but I think it's it's efforts like this that reach a broader constituency that, that is mm -hmm. something that, that the waterfowl profession has been wanting to do um, more effectively for at least since... Uh, the, the 2012 update of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan is engage a broader constituency. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm sure we're reaching a ton of duck hunters on this podcast and with a YouTube video. But, but, but yeah, engage the general public that needs to know more mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. And, and we had this conversation the other day at dinner, like, like outreach in this field is such an important aspect of it. Like mm -hmm. if people don't know what we go out there and do every day or understand it, it's mm -hmm. hard for them to have a connection or a want to back that, whether it's through policy or a donation or simply just sharing it as an interest. Like if you don't have outreach and people don't understand what you do, that there's, 
it's it's hard to to move forward in that field mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so these these youtube videos and podcasts and things like that that sort of spread their message more broadly and you know doing this summer series that moves be you know canvas waterfowl beyond hunting on college campuses to highlight some of these student research projects and sort of you know, show show certainly the Hudson constituency sort of what goes into managing these populations mm -hmm. and making sure that that things are being done sustainably and, and you know, we're providing for the resource in perpetuity, I think is super cool. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's a big need to break down the barrier between like science and then the public. Because I think like a lot of times like, you know, like we try to reach the public, but sometimes we're too you know we're almost like use too big word too big of words or something you know it's like it's hard to break down the models that we use you know and you know use it in layman's terms like you know because sometimes like i'll get really excited about my project and i'll just like start spewing off stuff and people are like slow down yeah, take a step back re-explain what you mean by that and you know so sometimes like we just as scientists forget you know we get so excited about it that we just kind of like go and we're just like, and we got to re-figure out how to engage the public in the science too. Yeah. And like, we're always in the field. So we're like these reclusive scientists that, mm -hmm. that are like, we don't want to interact with you. We want to go look at the ducks. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, right. if, if you do that forever, it just, it's not going to work out. You have to, you have to have a conversation at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think content like this definitely helps bridge like communities together definitely mm -hmm. uh, whether if it's like the hunting community the science community and then to the just the general public it kind of brings it everyone kind of together and, and mm -hmm. can people can see eye to eye of like kind of why we're doing doing what we're doing yeah. um and I, and i think with campus waterfowl for the longest time just highlighting like just hunt the hunting side of things um with us starting this the research tour um i think a lot of students are learning a lot about the ducks that they're going after in, in the fall mm -hmm. time and when they shoot that mallard that that great looking mallard and in, in the l late january uh, they can bring it back to the blind and actually talk about a, a little bit more mm -hmm. about it than just calling it a green head or something yeah so. yeah when we get <laughs> so like when we're tagging these ducklings um i'll get i'll see on facebook like on band hunters or whatever someone will post a picture of a wood duck with a web tag and it's got you know la315 which is one of our birds and yeah. so you know i'll i'm happy to so i'll i'll message the guy uh and you know we'll trade a few messages back and forth and i'll give him i'll say well that you know that's a duckling that that hatched from sherber north farm um from a clutch of 13 you know it was marked as a as a day one bird um and she traveled you know that 400 miles up to arkansas and until you shot her so thanks for reporting your band and they're like oh that's so cool i didn't mm -hmm. know yeah. that yeah. people were doing research on these things so mm -hmm. And that's yeah. something he'll tell that story over and over again. Oh, yeah. About yeah. The, the back, kind of the backstory behind the band. So, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's no, that's really cool. Um, yeah. And I think that's, like, one thing that's really cool about, like, the research aspect and, like, the different programs and stuff is, like, you know, like, I love bringing volunteers out into the field and, like, showing them, like, you know, like, hunters see a band and, like, oh, it's a band. And they get so excited about it. But, like, there's so much that goes into that band that – people don't necessarily know about because like Deca said we're kind of just sometimes a little reclusive with it you know yeah so i think it's important to show like like you just said like the backstory of the band too mm -hmm. what are some uh so we've been, been uh, looking at wood ducks and black belly whistling ducks uh this week what are some interesting things that maybe duck hunters could talk about black well black belly whistle, whistling ducks in the duck blind to their like their peers what's something that like a fun fact or something uh, that they could talk about my favorite thing is their name is like Dendrocygna autumnalis, and Dendrocygna means tree swan. 
that's like my coolest fact mm. that I have. Yeah, and they're they're evolutionarily more closely related to swans than they are to other ducks, and mm. they share a lot of characteristics with swans. So males and females look alike. We call that sexually monomorphic. Um, both sexes incubate, which is mm -hmm. hyper weird. Um, the young stay with mom and dad uh, after they fledge, which is really unusual. And so if you're in the blind and you're lucky enough to have a shot at whistling ducks, like they will be in a family group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And they will continue to circle after you shoot one or two of them. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I sat this dead. year and I saw a big family group fly over us. They were nowhere near coming down into the spread, but they were just heading somewhere. They had direction. Mm -hmm. but yeah. And so these, these birds will leave and go somewhere, you know, after the breeding season, we don't know where. That's why Stato is doing her project. But when they mm -hmm. come back in March, it looks like they're still in family groups. Um, and so we have blood from all of the birds that we've caught. And so we should be able to do genetic analyses to get at some of these questions. Um, but they're, yeah, they're just an incredibly unique species in North America. Um, and should you be lucky enough to shoot one, they taste pretty good, too. Yeah, so, so I've heard. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I've heard that as well. So I don't think. No, I haven't had one yet. So. Yeah, they're they're eating uh, a lot of agricultural grains, rice, and stuff like that, and so mm -hmm. they taste like a really good pintail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very cool. Um, I think you guys ready to wrap up? Yeah, I think it's yeah. a good spot to yeah kind of wrap things up. Well, uh, before we get kind of wrap things up, I always ask everyone, um, what is one piece of advice you would give to someone kind of listening to this podcast? We I mean, be be proactive if this is a field that you're really considering. Don't don't just let opportunities go by the wayside. You need to be the one that reaches out because if you don't do that and you don't show that initiative, like it's just not it's not going to stand out. You have to be the one that pursues this. Yeah, my advice is to just have fun. Like you know, it's a job like any other, but what sets us apart from other jobs is just like at least for me it's just how enjoyable it is like you know I'm passionate about it I love it like it gets hot in Louisiana but I want to be out there in the heat to interact with these ducks and ducklings and so just have fun with it go explore you know take different tech jobs see the world you know you have all these different opportunities at your hands just go for it you never know where you're going to end up you know life is not necessarily what you expect it all the time to be so just go yeah, I think uh, I'll combine both of those. And I, yeah, I think it, it is really important to be proactive and especially in building connections with people who can help get you things. So you can talk to your professors. It's yeah. fine. We are, in fact, people, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that's really important for, for college students. Um, and then being flexible, like like Starla was saying, taking advantage of opportunities. So, yeah, you may wa want to have a career sort of by your family or wherever you grew up or wh whatever, but that doesn't mean that you can't take a tech job in the Carolinas or in California or in the high Arctic um, and sort of explore those different things. Just be open to new experiences and, and be, try to be flexible mm -hmm. uh, in, in what you can do. All right. Perfect. Well, I can't thank you guys enough for letting me come down for a couple of days, follow you guys with the camera in the field. So yeah, guys absolutely. Have, <laughs> you guys absolutely. have been doing great. Um, I think, yeah, the YouTube video will turn out awesome. Uh, look forward to going back to editing that, but I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Hopefully, yes. yeah, hopefully some we ducklings. Got some ducklings. We got some ducklings. Um, and, and especially thank you because, like, yeah. for having this program and for, mm -hmm. for coming out here and doing all this. Like, you, you didn't have to drive – across the country to come out and see us but it, it's it means a lot <laughs> it means a lot especially for like outreach for the program yeah, yeah for sure no problem i'd, I'd do it again in our <laughs> beach yeah, so. yeah we're, we're incredibly <laughs> grateful because this is this is what science needs that's yeah. right
That's right. Well, I hope you guys uh, was able were able to learn a little bit, be inspired a little bit. I hope we have a few. We do have a few more trips planned for this off season before the hunting season starts. So uh, be on the lookout for that. But no, can't thank this crew enough. And thank you guys again for listening. And we'll see you in the next one. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. Bye.